Thanks, Steve. Evening, everybody. Well, <clears throat> if you were with us last week, uh, we were introduced to Nehemiah, who was living in Susa, in the middle of the Achaemenid Empire, which thankfully is otherwise known as Persia, because that's a lot easier to say. Now, we saw last week that he'd, uh, he'd received a report from his brother, uh, Hanani, telling him that the city of Jerusalem is still lying in ruins. And that seemed to come as a bit of a shock to Nehemiah. Possibly he thought that after Ezra had returned to Jerusalem, things would be on the up again for God's people. But this is 13 years after Ezra returned, and Nehemiah is alarmed to hear that they are still in great trouble and shame. That was in chapter 1. We have to remember that Jerusalem, for God's people, was more than just any old city. It was the centerpiece of God's covenant with them. If you think back just to a few weeks to some of the songs of ascent that we were looking at over the summer, um, you'll perhaps remember just how prominent Jerusalem, and sometimes it was sung as Zion, how, how prominent that was in the songs. The prosperity of the city was integral to the well-being of the nation. Not just because it provided physical protection, which of course it did, but it symbolized God's protection and care for all of his covenant people. They were meant to be God's people in God's place under God's good rule. And that ultimately brought God glory. So the fact that Jerusalem, the centerpiece of God's covenant, is in a mess and still lying in ruins is a big deal for Nehemiah. The temple had been rebuilt a few decades earlier, so the, the returned exiles could worship, and that was brilliant. The law was being taught again by Ezra, so that was great. But the rebuilding of the city is not yet complete. Far from it, as we find out, it's, it's in absolute ruin. So this is not the rebuilt, glorious kingdom that Nehemiah thought had been prophesied by Jeremiah a hundred years or more earlier. From Nehemiah's point of view, it's like, how can God be glorified by a city in ruins? So we saw in chapter 1, Nehemiah is broken-hearted about this. He, he mourned, fasted, prayed for days, if not weeks, and probably um, from, the, from the narrative, probably months, confessing the sins of Israel, confessing the sins of his own family, and falling on his knees before the Lord. He recalled God's words and promises in his prayers, asking for success. Not ultimately success for himself, but success so that God was glorified. Because God's glory is meant to be seen in his covenant people. They are your servants and your people, he prayed, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, be attentive. Uh, be attentive to the prayer of your servant. That's what he says in, in chapter 1. And then right at the end of the passage, we got a little glimpse into how the scene was beginning to be set for what is coming next. How the Lord was stirring him up. It was just a glimpse um, as he writes that he was the cupbearer to the king. 
and he prays, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. In other words, the king. So today we're picking up the story in the month of Nisan, uh, which is four months after his brother Hannah and I brought what, that initial report. And if last week we saw that Nehemiah's concern for God's people drove him to pray, this week we're going to see how Nehemiah's concern for God's people, coupled with his confidence in God's goodness, drives him to action. Concern for God's people and confidence in God's goodness drives Nehemiah to act. Firstly, we'll have a look at um, verses 1 to 8 and see how his concern for God's people outweighs his self-interest. I think to fully understand the magnitude of this first bit of the chapter, it'll help us to know a little bit of history. Um, I don't know if you like history, but it helps me to get my head around roughly what's going on. Okay, so I'm going to try and give you a brief one-minute history of the world up until this point, or at least, okay. So in, so we are set right now in Nehemiah in the year 445 BC, okay. So if we wind back to 612 BC, the Babylonians basically smashed the city of Nineveh. Listen up, impactors, for that might be important at some point in, in Jonah, okay. The Babylonians smashed Nineveh. 612 BC, and that was basically the end of the Assyrian Empire. An empire that had lasted for over a thousand years was was defeated in 612 BC. Shortly after that, in 605 BC, just a few years later, that's when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar II started to take the exiles from Judah into Babylon. But it actually wasn't very much longer after that that the Persians and the Medes came into Babylon and then smashed the Babylonians and took over them. That was 539 BC with King Cyrus, which for us today means two things. It means the Persian Empire is really, really big, and the Persian Empire is really, really powerful. It was big when Cyrus was king, but then under each ruler new extra bits of territory were added over the coming years, over the next sort of century. So by the time Artaxerxes was king, in, in today's book, the Persian Empire was as big as it ever got. It was the biggest kingdom there had ever been in the world at that point. It reached as far west as parts of Macedonia and on the edge of Greece, as far south as Egypt, and as far east as India. Okay, it's that enormous. To cut to the chase, it means that in 445 BC, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, as we've read, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world. Now that is a position of real privilege and trust. Because if you're the king, you want to know that you're not going to be poisoned. So you want to know that the person you're serving, serving your wine is totally, totally loyal. And Nehemiah was that guy. So as we enter chapter 2, we need to know that we're in the palace of the most powerful man on earth. So I'll just read the first verses again. 
In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now we know that Nehemiah has been heartbroken for months. But it seems that up until now he's managed to, to hide his feelings, at least from the king. But now the king has noticed, and Nehemiah is terrified. But why? But it, it might be that he's just not allowed to be downcast in front of the king. You know, people are going to be happy, keep, keep the king having a good day, that sort of thing. That could be one reason. But I think it's possible that there's something else going on. Um, in the book of Ezra, which is a kind of prequel to Nehemiah, we see that the same king, Artaxerxes, has been really generous to the Jews when Ezra returned to Jerusalem. He allowed them to go, he allowed them to go and worship, and he was favorable to them. But we also see that there have been problems because other settlers and, and governors in the region there, which is known as the region beyond the river, well, they'd not been happy with the return of the exiles. And in brief, they'd, they'd written a letter to Artaxerxes and said, Hey, can you, well, uh, you know those, those Jews that you've sent back? Well, they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And I think if you look in your records, you will see that it's a rebellious and wicked city. In fact, they're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. By the way, if, yeah, we'll, ju we'll just let you know that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, you will have no possession in the region beyond the river. Yours sincerely, have a nice day. So Artaxerxes wrote a decree almost immediately to stop the building of the city walls of Jerusalem. He said it, wouldn't, it shouldn't be rebuilt unless a decree is made by him. And we even read that he said, take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So when we read today that King Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah, why are you sad? What's Nehemiah going to say? Is it any wonder that he's more than a bit scared? He's, he's standing in front of the most powerful man in the world who's written a decree to stop the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem so that there's no uprising or rebellion. And the same man is now asking him why he's sad, and we know why Nehemiah is sad, because the walls aren't rebuilt. Is the cupbearer more loyal to the king or more loyal to a rebellious city? His answer could literally cost him his life. But Nehemiah is stirred up to act. His concern for God's glory and God's people outweighs his self-interest. And amazingly, he speaks truthfully to the king. Verse 4 says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is a still, still a perilous situation for Nehemiah. He, even now, he could just leave it at that. He could apologize profusely for being sad that the home of his ancestors is, is in ruins, but he could hope that the king just thinks he's still loyal and, and move on. But what does he do? He prays to the God of heaven. 
And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, then that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He could have lied. He could have tried to keep his good job in the most powerful kingdom of the world. <laughs> but his concern for God's glory and, and God's covenant promises led him not just to sorrow for the situation, but to action. He speaks out on behalf of another kingdom at potentially great cost to himself. He asks to be sent to be real, the, rebuild the very city that Artaxerxes said should not be rebuilt. He's essentially asking the king to revoke his decree. But let's not miss the fact as well that Nehemiah has been praying about this for months. And even now, in the middle of being questioned by the king, he still sends a silent prayer to the Lord. He shows great courage, but the way that he has got to this point is by being on his knees in prayer. His concern for God's people has shaped his prayers and shaped his actions. And, and the king grants him, uh, grants him the, uh, what he asks for. He goes on a journey of uh, 1,100 miles. It's roughly, I was looking at it on a map, it's about from Liverpool to Madrid, if you sort of, to walk it or go on a course, which I guess he did. That's a long way. He leaves the most powerful kingdom in the world to go to a run-down and broken place. But for Nehemiah, it's worth it because it is all about rebuilding God's covenant city and God's glory. And we're told even that it pleased the king to send him, that he granted him everything that he asked. But why? Well, in verse 8, Nehemiah says, The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The very things that he'd asked for in his prayer in the end of chapter 1, give success to your servant today, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And he's been given them by the king, but ultimately by God. Nehemiah is, is clear as he writes, that the kindness he has shown by the, his worldly king is only because of the good, uh, the good hand of his heavenly king. <coughs> Which brings us into the next section, where we find Nehemiah arriving in the province beyond the river with a military escort from the king, and immediately he is com confronted by opposition from the governors of the region. But... Nehemiah's trust in goodness, in God's goodness, gives him confidence in the face of opposition. His trust in God's goodness gives him confidence in the face of opposition. Uh, verse 9 and 10 say, Then I came to the governors in the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The contrast is, is quite stark, actually. We're, we're told in verse 6 that it pleased the king to send Nehemiah. But here in verse 10, Sanballat and Tobiah are greatly displeased. So who are these guys? Well, we know the governors. And we know from their names that they're not Jews. 
they're likely to be holding power locally in the region. Um, and just like many of the other governors that came before them, they're opposed to the Jews returning. Again, in Ezra's accounts, we get a short commentary of how with every new Persian king, some of the local governors beyond the river would try to disrupt the rebuilding of the temple or they'd try to discourage God's people and, as we saw earlier, stop the building of the wall. So Sambala and Tobiah are nothing new. They're just the latest and a long line of opponents that the returning exiles are facing. And now Nehemiah's turned up. They're not happy. They don't actually know his plans at this stage because nobody does. He's not told anybody. All they know is that he is seeking after the welfare of the people of Israel. And that's enough to get them riled. But their hearts are revealed to us in quite a simple way in, in how Nehemiah writes. You see, Nehemiah is driven by a concern for God's people and God's glory. And we're told the king is pleased to send him. And Sanballat and Tobiah are displeased by anyone seeking the welfare of God's people. Therefore, they're against God's glory. So they're not just people who slightly disagree over some matters about where they're going to build new houses or what piece of land people own. They are wholeheartedly against God's kingdom. That's the, that's the, um, the sense that we're meant to get from this. And we will see this time again as they crop up repeatedly throughout the book. But there's even more than first meets the eye. So this is a spoiler alert. I can't remember who's preaching on, verse, on chapter 6, but sorry. Um, we basically find out in chapter 6 that Tobiah and his son have married into families that came back from the exile. They're not of Jewish uh, heritage themselves, but they've married into the, the post-exile Jews. And Tobiah's basically got a load of prominent Jews in his back pocket, doing what he wants them to do. He's powerful in the region, and people are running around doing what he wants. And there's an even bigger shock in store with Sambalat, but I will leave that for you to find out later on. The fact that their names crop up here is just another early hint that the issues are not solely to do with the wall of Jerusalem not just the physical wall, but they run much deeper in the hearts and the lives of the people. Then in uh, verse 11 to 16, we get Nehemiah's account of his, his reconnaissance mission in the middle of the night. He goes around inspecting the walls, seeing the utter destruction that they've, uh, that they've fallen under. At one point, he can't even get past with his horse. He doesn't circuit the whole city at this point. He sort of has a look around the, the southern side and then, and then returns to the valley gate where he starts. Repeatedly, we're told that it was in the night. And again and again, we get the description of the walls being broken down and gates destroyed by fire. But Nehemiah keeps his reasons to himself. And verse 12 says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Surveying the work at hand, he holds his tongue until exactly the right time when he reveals that his God has given, uh, his, sorry, when he reveals his God-given plan in verse 17. You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may lo- no longer suffer derision. 
adding that the hand of my God has been upon me for good, and also the words of the king, and also told them the words the king spoke to him. And it seems to work instantly. They say, let us rise up and build, and they strengthen their hands for the good work. Even Sanballat and Tobiah can't put them off at this point, despite their jeers and taunts. They suggest that he's disobeying the king, but he doesn't even get out the letters to prove that he isn't disobeying the king. To show that Artaxerxes has given him his blessing. Instead, his response is that the God of heaven will make them prosper. Even though he has the backing of the most powerful ruler in the whole world, it is God's goodness that gives him confidence in the face of opposition. Because he knows that will never change or fail. He knows the the plans and promises of God are more steadfast than any human kingdom or ruler. And it is in the Lord's goodness that he puts his trust. And that really, in a nutshell, is at the heart of the message of Nehemiah. For all the good work that Nehemiah does, and he does do good work, which we will see over these coming weeks, is not ultimately him who's the hero. He is a wise and courageous leader. He prays and he leads. He plans and he follows through with those plans. For all the giftings he has and for all his willingness to, to get stuck in, the root of his success is not down to Nehemiah at all. It always falls back onto the good hand of the Lord. His prayers are based on the Lord's covenant promises. He overcomes his fear, not in his own strength, but knowing that the Lord has promised to build a kingdom, so he acts. But his confidence is in the promises. So as we see Nehemiah trust in the Lord, we can be challenged too. We too are called to be the people of God, laboring to fulfill God's promises. We should be on our knees in prayer for the state of the church locally and around the world. We should be grieved and moved, not just in our own hearts, but in giving ourselves and taking action for the building up of God's kingdom. As we work through Nehemiah over these next weeks, we're going to see a man who is passionately and self-sacrificially Uh, cares for God's people and glory but ultimately as wise and as generous and courageous as Nehemiah is whether that's in the face of fear his own fear whether it's in the face of opposition whether it's in the face of internal corruption in the face of all that no matter how he acts Nehemiah's reforms don't last forever. Chronologically, this is the final historical book of the Old Testament, and Jerusalem is rebuilt at the end of it, but it's still not what it should be. Because as good as Nehemiah is, he can't change the people's hearts. But if we think for a minute... Can we think of anyone else who gave up one kingdom out of a deep love for God's glory and to rebuild a broken people? Someone who 
despite fear and great cost to himself, put God's glory before his own. Someone else who left Jerusalem at night with a small group of men because of the work that God had put on his heart to complete. Someone who is jeered at and despised by his opponents. Through reading Nehemiah, we will see glimpses and foreshadows of Jesus, the, the greater servant, who poured out his life, not to, be re, not to rebuild the physical city of Jerusalem, but an eternal kingdom out of broken and messed up living stones. And that is good news. Because it's in his strength that we're saved and being built into a kingdom of people. It is his spirit at work in us. It's his spirit in which we find the courage to take action for the good of his church and our brothers and sisters around the world. We never have to muster up that courage ourselves, but like Nehemiah, we turn to the promises of God, seeing his good hand at work as he builds and gathers people for himself, and knowing that Jesus himself is interceding for us right now as we live for him. I'll pray as we finish. Lord God, in Nehemiah we see a servant who left the comforts of the greatest kingdom in the world to rebuild your broken kingdom. And we see him broken-hearted in prayer for the state of your kingdom. As we see that, help us to be moved to diligently pray for the good of your people around the world. As Nehemiah lays aside his own interests and, and faces fear and opposition, trusting in your good hand for the good of your people, help us, to, help us too to be stirred to act. Help us to boldly serve in the places you've put us, even places we've not yet been. Striving to tell others of the good news of forgiveness that we find in the Lord Jesus. But as we look at Nehemiah, help us, Lord, not to look ultimately to him as a good example or to ourselves to muster up the courage, but to your son, Jesus, the true humble servant who left the glories of heaven to build a kingdom from broken and messed up people like us, the man of sorrows who wept for Jerusalem, who wept for your people, and who even when faced with the fear of death and ridicule of enemies didn't turn away, but gave his very life to gather people into his kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.